Hello, friends, and Happy New Year. Welcome to Josiah Venture Stories. Gwen Gardner here, and for the month of January, we will be sharing the main talks from our last fall conference. Thank you for joining us for this teaching podcast. Generations change. They are always in motion. Often we are tracking the change, but sometimes change comes abruptly, like an explosion. There have been three major explosions over the last few years. The social media explosion, the COVID explosion, and the family explosion. How should we respond? We need to be giving young people the teachings of Jesus, the gospel, but we also need to bring them the healing of Jesus. Our annual 2023 fall conference theme was Lifeline, First Responders in the Anxious Generation. We brought in Dr. David Van Dyke, a marriage and family therapist and professor at Wheaton College to speak and train us all in what it looks like to be like Jesus for people in need. Our goal was to equip youth leaders across the region with practical tools to respond to the ever-increasing mental health issues among the youth in their ministries. Thank you for listening, and please continue to pray that we will be first responders for the anxious generation who are fully present, ask good questions, listen well, and point them to the love of Christ. All right, so we're we're going to talk about some uh, interesting things. We're going to connect it to our bodies. If you haven't noticed, I think our bodies are important in our emotional and mental health life. Uh, your relationships, your thoughts, your feelings— uh, all have an impact on your body, as well as your body having an impact on your emotional life. So one caveat, when I give these talks, when I give these talks, it can kick up things for you. It can dust up things for you. So you might be feeling uncomfortable. You might be getting reactive to past pains. I am completely okay. You need to take a breath, take five minutes, please, please take care of yourself in this process. Uh, this is not about creating discomfort for you that you can't tolerate. It's about creating discomfort for you that you can tolerate, that we can lean in and through. So if it, if it stirs up things, take a break. We're going, we're going to talk about depression. What, how many people feel you know what depression is? Depression is feelings, it's behaviors, it is affected by your environment and it's neurobiological. Uh, and so when we have these symptoms that you see, trouble sleeping, uh, change in diet, uh, change in weight, gaining weight, losing weight, persistent sadness, crying all the time, no longer finding things enjoyable that you used to find enjoyable. So in Christian communities, it's usually, I just, I don't feel the presence of God the same way. I don't really feel like praying. The things that gave you joy, the things that drew you in, it's just, it's not there anymore. We call that anhedonia, like lack of pleasure, absence of pleasure. Uh, these are the symptoms, these are the signals that we see when we see depression. Now depression, we can all have these feelings. I feel tired, I cry on stage. There's, you know, there's a lot of these things that it's like, if you just looked at these symptoms, oh, David might be depressed. Well, depression isn't having these symptoms. Depression is having these symptoms over a specific period of time. So feeling sad, down, 
tired, listless, lack of pleasure, doesn't mean you're depressed. If it exists over a period of time, say six months, that's when we start leaning in as professionals of thinking there's something serious going on here. And what happens, this is gonna be a real basic description, so don't like say, oh, I learned what depression is, it's like working out. Um, that's the metaphor I'm gonna use to help you understand, but it's much more complicated. But how many people work out? All right, good. So when, when we work out, we work out and we get fatigued. And then we need a recovery period so we can get back to our baseline or better and keep working out again. So we have this kind of, we put effort, we have exhaustion, lactic acid is produced, we need to get rid of the lactic acid and you move back up and then I'm performing it. Depression is similar to this kind of idea. We are, when we're under stress, when we have stressful experiences, when we're in the midst of suffering, there's going to be kind of like a workout. We're burning, instead of we're burning energy, calories, and muscle, we're burning neurotransmitters. We're using up our dopamine, we're using up our uh, serotonin, and we're coming down a bit. We need to have two things. We need recovery time so that we can get up to our baseline, and we need to know how to manage that stress so that we don't go down as much. So we're, we're wanting to manage how we respond to stress because that keeps us at a little bit higher level and we need the recovery time to come up. What happens when we're under persistent stress over time without the recovery or we don't know how well to manage stress, we're gonna be working at a deficit and eventually it becomes a new default that we reset, maybe here's my dopamine production and, and my exercise ability is up here and after time, my body resets down here. Kind of like body, your body weight, your BMI kind of resets. So now I have a lower capacity, and then under stress again, it's gonna go deeper. And we see that symptomatically, and that's why we look at these symptoms over a six-month period. But that's what depression is. It's, it's our ability to navigate the stressors in our life and our physical response, and so some of us, have predispositions to maybe not having as much dopamine or not having the same recovery, right? Same way as some of us have different physical abilities. It doesn't mean that we can't improve our physical abilities, but our starting spots. So the, the defender named Van Dyke from Liverpool has certain athletic abilities. And then there's the Van Dyke from, West, uh, from uh, Chicagoland area has different athletic abilities. We both can improve, but it's not gonna look the same. And that's the same for us. We, some of us have predispositions, whether it's, we tend to think about that in terms of health issues, right? We tend to think about that in terms of physical capabilities, or maybe I'm living with diabetes, or I'm, uh, I'm, need, I'm needing insulin because my body doesn't produce insulin the exact same way as a different body does. So I'm predisposed, and there's a very varied level. It could be a type one uh, diabetes, or it could be type two diabetes. Uh, and those are different types, but it's still about the production of insulin that's different than someone that doesn't have that. So there's biological predispositions that lead us each to having a greater or lesser likelihood of experiencing depression. And then there's the situational issues that help lead us to all of us to have a downward cycle. But does it last? Is it pervasive? That's where, as a clinician, I have the difference between 
you're feeling depressed versus you are depressed, right? You have depressed feelings, you're sad, you're tired. I get it, I kinda, we can talk about what's happening in your body and there's coping strategies that we can deal with that versus you are depressive, really, you can have good coping strategies, you're not gonna move that, that dial very high without medication uh, to be able to be at a different functioning level. So if you just try one as a, as a first responder, if it's someone that's clinically depressed and you try using your skills that we have in your backpack, ministry of presence, listening, questioning, kingdom resources, great first responding, it's not helping, right? It's, that's not enough care. So it might help them get through the day, but that's where you need to make a referral to a psychiatrist, to a, a therapist that can help both with the biological changes that are needed and the coping strategies that are needed and the meaning making. So this is, this is the difference. We're getting into the difference of what you can do and what you need to refer. Remember the questions about referral? Now we're looking specifically at mental health issues of what you can do that can be helpful. Someone that's sad and struggling, your skill sets can handle that and you can do that work because it's, they're on the recovery up and you can teach them and be with them and be present with them and listen to them and that can be strategy that navigates the situational stress and suffering. If they are down and they've been down for a long time. It's why when we went back to the first day, why I started with referral and it's, it felt like, why are we talking about referral? We need the skill sets. Well, it's because there's gonna be situations where you need to know the difference and know where the resources are to be supportive. So C.S. Lewis, again, sorry, he's the patron saint. If we had patron saints in Protestant life, uh, he would be the patron saint of Wheaton College. Uh, like we all, we all, like we have to talk about Lewis anywhere we go in the world at least once. Uh, otherwise we lose our status as professors at Wheaton. <laughs> but it, it does seem that way. And uh, Lewis is a, a British theologian and author. Um, some of you might have read this book, The Problem of Pain. He published it in 1940. Uh, and it addresses Christian, Christian and philosophical underpinnings and explanations of why do we have pain and what's the problem of pain? Uh, and so I would encourage you if you get excited about pain or are struggling with pain and want to make sense of it in a faith background and in the deep philosophical and you'd like to have that focus more than like 90 minutes, you'd like to sit with it and marinate in it, get Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. This quote, I think, handles depression pretty well. Uh, mental pain What's going on for me emotionally and mentally is less dramatic than physical pain. And I would say it's less evident. If you're limping, physically, I can see, well, there's something wrong maybe with your Achilles or you've pulled a hammy. But what does mental limping look like? My guess is there's a bunch of people here that have emotionally and mentally have a pulled hamstring, metaphorically, and it's not visible. And this is the hard thing, because in our ministry and in a group like this, there are people that we care about sitting next to us that are suffering that we don't even know because there's no physical evidence. It's, a, it's harder to see than the physical pain. So mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain. 
but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. I don't think he wrote it that way, but that's what I want to highlight, right? That the attempt to push it down, push it aside, just keep going, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. Any Dory fans? Okay, thank you. I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe you don't get Disney and Pixar here. I don't know. Uh, but that idea of just keep going, just push through, it actually increases the pain. My wife is a doula. Tara's a, a doula. How many people know what a doula is? All right. Oh, wow, this is great. In America, it's like one person. It's usually me. I know what a doula is. Uh, she helps childbirth navigating pain, navigating the process, thinking about how your body works naturally and how can the medical process be not, birth isn't a disease, it's a natural process. The pain in birth is purposeful, not something we should medicate necessarily. Uh, and yet we, in the States, we like to intervene in the process, in the natural process, because birth is a disease that needs medication. Uh, and she helps navigate pain. And in her pain management class, she has, especially the dads, she has an ice cube and has the dad squeeze the ice cube for 60 seconds. And it's painful, not equivalent to a contraction, right? But it's, it, you know, we're, we have less stable neurological systems, so it's bad enough for us. And it's why we were created as men and not having uteruses. Uh, so you squeeze, you squeeze the ice and it hurts and you can, barely, you can barely squeeze it for 60 seconds. You get a new piece of ice and you hold it open in your hand. You can hold it there a lot longer. The coldness is the same. Our response to it increases or decreases the pain. The more we hold, the tighter we hold to it, the more we fight it, the worse the pain ex is experienced. The lighter we hold it, leaning into it, the less the burden. This is what Lewis is talking about, that leaning into the pain, it still hurts, but the pain is experienced differently. And you'll see, that's why it's like, right? The breathing, all of those uh, birth processes about responding to pain, not trying to clamp down and push it away, but breathe into it, lean into it, it becomes less intense. This is what Lewis is telling us, that our mental efforts to fight it is going to increase the burden. So it's easier to say, oh, my tooth hurts, or oh, my toe hurts, than it is to say, my heart is broken. Or I saw, I forget what commercial it was, but it showed a, a food dispenser candy, candy machine, and it had a sticky note on it that said, broken in, on the inside. And it's like, that's harder to say that, Dave, I feel broken on the inside. Uh, it's easier to say, man, my hip, it's just feeling weird. I can talk about my physical pain with Dave Patty, but talking about how I feel broken on the inside, why would I want him to know that? He'll never invite me back if I admit that there's something wrong. And so I'm gonna hide it, but then that pressure builds exponentially rather than like, yeah, I'm not okay. Is it okay to not be okay? Lewis says, I hope in a Christian community, the problem with pain isn't pain, it's our response to it. It's our response to it, and that's what we have control over. We don't have control over the suffering or pain. We don't have control over the depression. We have control over how we respond. Are we going to be honest about it? 
Are we going to be vulnerable about it? If we aren't, why would we expect our teenagers to share and lean in? Because we're modeling for them. Be perfect. Have everything together. Trust in Jesus. All true. We want to seek excellence. We love Jesus. He is the answer. And if that's it, and there's not the vulnerability, there's not the brokenness, there's not the view of seeing the healing of Jesus in action in our lives, why would the teenagers take the risk? Why would they listen to us? And that's what they tell me. You have it all together. I'm not going to tell you I'm struggling. You don't know. Now, we don't want to go, oh, I, you know, teenagers say, I'm struggling. They're like, oh, let me tell you how depressed I am right? We, we learn those skill sets. That's not the way to answer, right? But they watch us. They watch how we live because you're living in community and ministry. They're watching all the things you're saying outside that individual time with them. And they're seeing, are you humble? Are you willing to make mistakes? Are you willing to talk about your mistakes? So depression is a problem, but it's a response to it. Uh, you can see another book, so if you like reading, another book by Lewis is called Observed. Harder text to read. It's about the death of joy. And I don't mean that in terms of like the spiritual joy. His wife's name was Joy. So his book, A Grief Observed, is his process, his grief process, his emotional process, watching and walking with his wife dying. It is a strong testimony to how do we deal with depression? How do we deal with grief? How do we respond? I mean, what a brave man that he would share that with the world in written form. How are we suffering? Do we realize that we're feeling depressed? Is it depressed or is it depression? So what do we need to assess? We need to assess behavior, emotion, and thoughts. So what you'll see for your teenagers that may be struggling with depression, but remember, it's not just a one-off that they have this feeling, therefore they're depressed. It's if these type of symptoms exist for six months or more. If you're just seeing this, you can use your first aid kit and help them. If it's persistent, then you're going to need to bring in resources. So we have behaviorally, um, there's a wide range. And the behavior will look different based on culture and based on gender, but we're going to see school and home problems. You're going to experience people talking about family problems at home, school problems, uh, social anxiety we talked about, right? Withdrawing from insignificant relationships, withdrawing from church, isolating. You haven't seen that youth in six weeks. That makes me go, hmm, I probably should check in on that one to see what's going on. It doesn't mean that there's depression, but that's a sign that I need to ask some questions. I need to be present. I need to listen. All those skill sets that you had are helpful in the assessment. You see how all this is building? We did the skills, now we're looking at specific uh, areas of distress. Uh, fatigue, change in sleep and eating patterns. Uh, so we have behavioral change. We have emotional change. Crying for no explicit reason. Um, just starting to cry. Uh, weeping at the drop of the hat. Loss of enjoyment in usual activities and feelings of worthlessness. In youth ministry, you hear these things. You see these things. 
I know I did. I would talk with someone and they just, tears would just be right at the surface. Or they're just like, I'm nothing. I, I'm not worth anything. No one would miss me if I was gone. These are types of emotional experiences that we, we want to be thinking about when we're assessing depression. And then lastly, hard to concentrate, fixation on failures or exaggerated self-criticism, uh, and then thoughts of suicide, death, or self-harm. That these are, these are the symptom checklists that you need to go through. And remember, it's not that it's just happening this one time, but it's persistent over time. So what can you do? What are you gonna practice doing? Be present and checking in. If you don't see them, reach out to them. Allow for complicated emotions. Uh, don't take it personally. Uh, it might be like, screw you, I hate you. There's, I can't tell you how many times people have swear, have swear at me. Um, and I thought, I started to think, oh, maybe it's me. Uh, like, why are people swearing at me all the time? Uh, and then, like, can you not, can I, can you not use that language? Um, that's never really good to cr someone struggling and upset and to, like, yeah, I want to hear how angry you are. Can you correct your language first and then we'll be okay? Um, I tell my students this in terms of play therapy. A kid will be playing and throw sand all over the room. Uh, we don't make the child pick up the sand. That's their exploration. They're trying to figure it out. They leave, I have to vacuum and get ready for the next child in the, in the play therapy room because their play is their language and they need to leave it a mess because that's how their life is feeling and I'm responsible for picking it up. It's the same thing in therapy or in first responders. Uh, our pull is to like wrap everything up in a nice bow at the end of our time. Like everything needs to be okay when we're done. The empathetic pull is to make everything okay in the, in the 10 minutes that you're dealing with you. You don't have to, especially around depression. You don't have to make, if they're safe, you don't have to make it all okay at the end. Uh, avoid uh, providing immediate meaning. You are so blessed, you shouldn't be depressed. <laughs> How many people have said that? No hands, just hypothetical, rhetorical. Uh, I wonder if we've said something like that. You know what? You're so, God has blessed you. You're so blessed. You shouldn't be feeling this way. Ooh. Yeah. Well, from this point forward, let's not do that. Can we make an agreement that we not do that? They can't, we can hold two things. You can be blessed and you can be depressed. You can be blessed and you can be suffering. We can hold both of those things that we only can hold one then they have to decide, am I blessed and God love me or is it what my biology is telling me right now that I can't fight against and I feel this way? If it's either or, then God is absent from me in my depression. And that's a problem because that just increases the mental anguish. We can highlight how loved we are and we're struggling. We can, we can highlight, yes, you're blessed and this doesn't make sense and I'm with you in it, right? We're gonna be the first seven days of Job's counselors and not the ones that are like, obviously you must have done something wrong because you're suffering. We wanna hold both of those things, God's truth and the situation that they're in in the moment. Both of those things we wanna hold lightly with them. Listen deeply, you have the skills to do this without distraction, without interruption, validating. So what I hear you saying is, 
What I hear you saying is that this is really hard and the pain is so loud it's hard to hear God. That's a, that's a validating about being blessed and struggling. It's like, man, that pain is super loud. I get it. I can be encouraging and validating at the same time. Just a little aside, you have to be careful about using these skill sets in your marriages and in your friendships. Uh, the best fight that Tara and I ever had was when I said to her, so what I hear you saying is, and she goes, I don't need a therapist, I need David. And my response was, David's not here right now, can you leave a message and I'll get back to you. <laughs> it's the danger, it's, well, no, and it's, it's, yes, it is funny. Uh, and the, it's, it's dangerous because I hid behind my clinical skill in my relationship. I was there as a therapist for Tara, and not there as her husband fully present. And we have to realize the difference. When we shift as youth ministry into the crisis mode, into the mental health mode, we are there for them, and it's gonna be a slightly different relationship than being there with them. Now we use the ministry of presence, but we're, we're there to navigate the pain with them. We can shift out of that later and have fun and play, but you're gonna have to learn like I did when I step into the role of my clinical skill and I reach in my backpack, and when I'm just me. Now, I'm jealous, quite frankly, because it'll be easier for you. I've been doing these clinical skills for 25 years, a quarter of a century, and it's, it's easy to lose myself in the professional skills, and it's safe. I know all the ways to navigate people, manipulate people, and people see kind of my curriculum vita, and they treat me a certain way. They don't see me as goofball 14-year-old David. They see me as Professor Van Dyke. Uh, and it's hard to like, no, can you see me for me? We have to practice that in our own life so that we can enter in and have our students be able to do that. So our skills are important, but we also need to not lose being present, being fully real, being yourself, when it's not a crisis moment, when it's not a clinical moment. Build them up. They are loved by you and by God. I see the effort you're putting in. I see how you're struggling. I get it. You are loved and this is hard. You are loved and it's hard to even feel that right now. It doesn't matter what you're feeling. God is loving you whether you feel it or not. Just the last thing when to seek help, and we're gonna talk about suicidal assessment in a little bit, but when to seek help. Uh, if they say, uh, I'd, rather not, I'd rather not be around tomorrow, that's when you ask the question, right? Uh, if there's significant decrease in school performance, if there's prolonged isolation, if there's self-harm, those are all beyond you. I mean, I'm sure you can be helpful, but clinically, this is when you need to refer. Here's some really good quotes about anxiety. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. This is from Charles Spurgeon. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. So worrying about what's going on doesn't take away then if I worry now, it'll make things better tomorrow. All it does is empty today of any, any skills, any strengths, any abilities that I have. Why worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow will take care of itself, right? Spurgeon is kind of talking about this scripture, that there's enough to worry about today. There's enough 
that I need to deal with in the strength of today that why worry about tomorrow? Leave that into the Lord's hands. But this is hard when we're aggravated, when we're agitated. And I'll talk about the difference of anxiety and, and worry. Anxiety is like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but doesn't get you very far. I love that. Can you picture that, just in a rocking chair? Yeah, it's soothing, but you're not going anywhere. And anxiety is like that. And Jody uh, Picot is a, a sufferer of anxiety, but she's also an author uh, that writes beautifully. And I love this turn of phrase. Anxiety is like a rocking chair. Gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you very far. And then, and then guess who we're going to quote one more time? C.S. Lewis. Some people feel guilty about their anxieties and regard them as a defect of faith. I do not agree at all. They are afflictions, not, not sins. Like all afflictions, they are, if we can so take them, our share in the passion of Christ. Let me read that one more time. Some people feel guilty about their anxieties and regard them as a defect of faith. If I'm anxious, it means I don't have enough faith. If I had enough faith, I wouldn't feel anxious. And Lewis is saying, I don't agree at all. They, anxiety are afflictions, not sins. Like all afflictions, they are, if we can take them so, our share in the passion of Christ. How does that change, right? Having a theology of suffering and thinking about anxiety in this way, how does that change then our response to suffering and to anxiety if we think about it as sharing the affliction of Christ rather than some defect of our faith or some sin that we have to beat out of ourselves? So it's just a way of thinking about this that might change then our responses if we see it in a different light. Next is Brock Morgan. Brock writes a book called The Anxious Teen. And Brock is a youth minister. So Brock Morgan is a youth minister uh, in Southern California. And he wrote this great text. If you're interested in about the anxious generation, you're in interested in anxiety, uh, the teenagers, this is the book for you, The Ancient Teen. So for Brock, in working with anxious teens, it's about our relationship first, then we can explain here's what's going on. Um, and you have the skill sets, again, to deal with that. So from Brock's perspective, how is worry and anxiety different? Worry is concern about the future. Anxiety is a physical response to a perceived threat, real or created. There's a trigger that stimulates in the lower part of our brain, fight, flight, or freeze. Run, hide, fight. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a, a little prompt here that's helpful, a physical thing. So this is going to be your brain. Everybody hold up a fist with your thumb tucked in. This is a metaphor for your brain. So you'll see brain stem. Here's the upper part of your brain. This is going to be your, your fingertips are your prefrontal cortex, your executive functioning part. And this part right here, your thumb, is your limbic system. Brain stem, higher order, prefrontal cortex, Limbic system. Limbic system is really basic. It reads emotion and it helps us react. It does fight, flight, freeze, right? It's, it's our natural autonomic response, automatic response to a perceived threat. And so in adolescence, this part is super active. 
and it misreads emotions, and it feels it more intensely. <laughs> so we, we have this going on. And in teenagers, this is the loudest. And you probably see this. It's like, you'll say something, they're like, my life is over. And you're like, your life is not over. Oh, I just, I hurt so bad. I just love so bad my heart's being ripped out of my chest. And you're like, really? I mean, you just knew him for five minutes. <laughs> Right, and, but it's that intensity, it's the deep feeling, and it's misreading the situation completely. Uh, the prefrontal cortex is what we talked about developing fully by the time we're 25. And what we want to have is our executive functioning having a, com a conversation with our limbic system. So we have an experience, a threat. We have something that scares us, and, and emotionally it tends to be, I'm afraid of being abandoned, you're gonna leave me. Or it's, I'm afraid of being overwhelmed. I just need my space. Can you picture a relationship where one partner is like, uh, I need you, I need you, I need you. And the other one's like, I need my space, I need my space, I need my space. And it creates anxiety of like, oh, you're leaving me. And so what do I do? I pursue. The one feeling, taking a step back is like, I need my space. And you step forward, I feel attacked, I feel overwhelmed, and I take a step back. So the dance of soothing the limbic response is actually creating and heightening it in the other, and they do this limbic tango. Ah, 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 and they just keep going back and forth, and it escalates. So teenage love is like this, right? Teenage dating, it's just like, woo, their limbic systems are having conversations, and it's loud, and it's out of control, and it doesn't make any sense. And what we're wanting to is be aware of what's happening. Like, I feel overwhelmed by you. I feel it, my heart's racing, and I'm like, okay, how do I slow down? Maybe I need to do my breath prayer, but how do I get my heart rate low? Because I feel the perceived threat, I feel the response in my body. I might not know what it is, but I can slow my body down, that then I can start thinking about, what is that? And how do I want to respond? Rather than, ah, right? But we do this a lot. We react. Anxiety is that perceived threat. Anxiety is that, ah, and I can't think about it. I'm just activated. My body is primed for some kind of reaction. Does this make sense? So this is anxiety. And this is what we can use our skills, like mindfulness in terms of the meditation on Scripture, the breath prayer. All the kingdom resources can help us realize what's going on in our body, slow down so that we can think and then be present with others that can share and ask questions that goes deeper. You were saying, I thought I was okay, but then when I interact with someone else, I start to see what's deeper down there. I'm starting to connect this logic and this intentionality and executive functioning with the reactivity that's deeper down in me. The anxiety in our, in our cultures, in our generation, is this just constant stimulation of feeling perceived threat. And it's often connected to what's on our phones, in the media, maybe even in the church and in the youth group unintentionally, that there's ways that they're experiencing being overwhelmed and they're not able to slow down and experience what's happening to their body and think and be able to respond intentionally. It's just reactivity. And I said the fun facts that you misread emotions as an adolescent and you feel them uh, super passionately. Uh, and so, the nice, uh, the nice thing about that is, uh, 
I would say hashtag, if you're gonna talk about anxiety and adolescence, it's basically, ha we still do this, or is this like not totally like 2012? Hashtag, no filter. Uh, that's, uh, that's what we're thinking about, anxiety and, and adolescence. All right, we're moving on to the last topic. And the last topic is suicide. Self-harm. Uh, the fear is if we bring up self-harm and suicide, it will cause it. If I ask, it will be like saying, hey, I have a solution for you. Why don't you kill yourself? That's not what it is. Asking the question is like ministry of presence. And there's three, four things you wanna ask. You wanna ask, do they have suicidal ideation? Do they have, you have suicidal thoughts? Do you have a plan? How accessible is whatever your plan and how lethal is it? So SPAL, suicidal thoughts, plan, accessibility, lethality. So these are the four things that we're going to ask about. And it's the first question, like a teenager might be like, I just wish I wasn't around. Um, it's just like, yeah, I, I get it. It seems like this is pretty hard situation. When you say not be around, it's like wanting to kill yourself, right? I can just kind of take the natural and ask, is, is, that, is that what you're saying? Yes, no. Yeah, and if they say yes, then I would go into plan. How, how would you do it? You don't have to say, and now do you have a plan? It doesn't have to be really formal. So if they say, you know what, I, I don't wanna be around, that might just be enough and I could say, well, how, how would you do that? If you don't wanna be around, how would you do that? That's asking the plan question. And they might be like, what, what do you mean? I mean, like, do you, have you thought about how you would do it? And they're like, no, I'm just, I'm just tired and stressed. I'm like, oh, cool, and we can move on. Or it'd be like, yeah, I would take a bunch of pills. Oh, uh, where would you get the pills? Right, now I'm asking the accessibility on, on the A part. Where would you find them? What would they be? And if they answer, oh, it'd just be baby aspirin, then I'm not worried about the lethality part. If it's like my mom's chemotherapy medicine with vodka, then I'm like, oh, now we got a problem. Because they have, they, they're feeling suicidal, they have a plan, uh, they have accessibility, and it's pretty lethal. And so then I'm gonna need to do something. I'm need to, and I'll tell them, you know what, I'm a mandate, in the States we're mandated reporters. And so it's like, I need to, I need to call someone to keep you safe. And I don't want you, to, I was just kidding. I'm like, I understand. It doesn't mean that anything bad's gonna happen, but we're gonna involve more people in this conversation uh, because this is serious and I understand the amount of distress you're in. I understand that you're overwhelmed and can't see any way out and I'm going to be the part of you that's gonna keep you safe while you're feeling that. Now that's taken like 10 years for me to be comfortable saying it like that, right? Are you all feeling like, oh, I could do that? No, you can. It takes practice. So even if you practice in front of a mirror, how would you do it? What? Okay, so you take those, or you would, I would shoot myself. Where would you get the gun? Your family have guns? Right, I'm just curious, I'm asking, but you notice they're directional questions, remember our questions? I'm not asking, I'm, I'm asking open-ended at the beginning, and then I get very close-ended. It's yes, no, give me specifics. But I can do it in a gentle way that it's like, this isn't scary. So my limbic system isn't going, oh! 
as we talk about this. My guess is for about half of you, you're like this and I can't think about it. All I'm doing is feeling scared and overwhelmed and it feels really serious. And, oh, I don't know if I could do that. And your body starts to race, your heart starts to race. So everybody just notice your body right now as we're talking about this. And if you're feeling a little bit unsettled, take a breath, maybe do your breathing prayer for God our comforter, give me strength or whatever the name of God is, and whatever you need in this moment. But you're wanting to use that prayer to also partner with your body, to not be reactive, to be able to be intentional with this worry and this concern. Anyway, regardless of if they cross the the threshold of severity, talk to your team lead. Talk to someone on your team. You're not alone. The beautiful thing about Josiah Venture, look around. There's a lot of people here that will come alongside you. Breathe, breath prayer, be aware of your body, slow down, slow your breathing, heart rate. When I was an early young clinician, I wore a Fitbit back when those were things. Are they still things? Uh, but I used to have a Fitbit and I would, people would be screaming at me, yelling curse words, telling me they wish I was dead, you know, fun stuff. Uh, and. I would work on getting my heart rate back down to 60 beats a minute before I would respond. Uh, so let's go to video. I want you to hear from kids about suicide. I have my ups and downs, just like anybody else. Maybe more than anybody else. I can be hard to figure out. And I like my privacy. I don't want you looking over my shoulder all the time. But you know your kid better than anybody else. And if you think he's acting different than usual. Acting really down crying all the time for no good reason. Or getting really mad. Not able to sleep or sleeping too much. Shutting her friends out or giving her stuff away. Acting reckless, drinking, using drugs, staying out late. Suddenly not doing stuff he used to love. Or doing stuff that's just not like him. It might be nothing to worry about. It might just be high school. Or it might be something more. He might be depressed. Not just feeling down, really depressed. It might be that your kid is thinking about killing himself. It happens, more than you think, more than it should. And people say, I had no idea. I thought it was just a phase he was going through. I never thought she'd do it. I wish he'd come to me. I wish he'd said something. I wish I'd said something. When it's too late. So if you think your kid's acting different, if she seems like a different person, say something. Say, what's wrong? How can I help? And ask straight out, are you thinking about killing yourself? It doesn't hurt to ask. In fact, it helps. When people are thinking about killing themselves, they want somebody to ask. They want somebody to care. Maybe you're afraid you'll make it worse if you ask. Like, you'll put the idea in their head. Believe me, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't hurt to ask. In fact, the best way to keep a teenager from killing herself is to ask, are you thinking about killing yourself? And what if they say yes? Or maybe. Or sometimes? Well, here's what you don't say. That's crazy. Don't be such a drama queen. You're making too much of this. That boy's not worth killing yourself over. That's not going to solve anything. You're just trying to get attention. You're not going to kill yourself. What you do say is, I'm sorry you're feeling so bad. How can I help? We'll get through this together. Let's keep you safe. A lot of people think about killing themselves, adults and kids. Most of them never try it, but some of them do. So if your kid says, I'd be better off dead. I can't live with this. I'm gonna kill myself. Take her seriously. Find someone she can talk to about it. Someone who knows how to help. Sometimes kids want to kill themselves because something happened. A breakup, a failure. 
But sometimes it goes deeper, and it's not going to go away by itself. Get some help. Talk to your doctor. Or a counselor at school. Or your minister. But don't just let it drop. And make sure that your kid always has someone to turn to. Someone he trusts. Make a list together, write them. Three, four, five names. Put a suicide hotline number on there too. Have him keep that list in his wallet so he always knows where to turn. Make sure your home is safe. If you have pills she could use to hurt herself, lock them up. If you have a gun, don't just lock it up. Get it out of the house, the bullets too. And one more thing, if you think your kid might be about to hurt himself, don't leave him alone. Take him to the emergency room. Call 911 if you have to. We all have our ups and downs, but sometimes it's more than that. If you think something's wrong, the only way to find out is to ask. Ask straight out. Are you thinking about killing yourself? Don't wait until you're sure. Trust your gut, because it never hurts to ask. And it can make a big difference. All the difference. In your kid's life. This is from uh, the Mayo Clinic in the U.S. It's our top medical school. Um, this has been one of the most effective tools with families, with youth pastors, in terms of trying to normalize, talking about it's not a problem, pushing it down. Remember Lewis's quote, like, the more we push it down, the more pain there is. Uh, attending to it, asking questions, realizing you have resources. You have a ton of resources right now um, in your backpack. You're capable of handling this. I'm excited about that. I'm excited that you get to share this, pass it on to your teams, pass it on to your teens, uh, that this will have a ripple effect that not only keeps them safe, but they have an experience of Jesus who loves us, who's with us in those dark places that we sang about, and he pulls us out of the pit. And we get to be part of that in the hands and feet, both in the mental health skills and the kingdom resources that we have. Thank you for listening to Josiah Venture Stories. For more information about who we are and our vision and mission, visit us at josiahventure.com and follow us on social media. If you have any questions about this episode or would like to get in touch with our guest, please email social at josiahventure.com. To help more people hear about this podcast, please leave us an honest written review or share this episode on your social media. Thank you, friends, and have a blessed day.